Very well, we will be continuing this morning, <coughs> underscoring and restating, reviewing and firming up some of the major lessons we have learned so far from our study in the book of Revelation as we've reached to the end of chapter 14. We're doing this before we move on and open up the rest of the book, and it's very important, please. I want you to go to Acts firstly, because uh, the lesson is in Acts chapter 1 and 36. No doubt about the fact that the truth of this verse is really uh, underscored, revealed, if you like, revealed, shown to us in the book of the Revelation. <clears throat> it says there in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, the preaching of Peter on Pentecost, he breaks out in verse 36 and he says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Jesus of Nazareth, the lowly man you crucified, God made him both Lord given him supreme authority and total control and Christ affirmed that he is the promised one, the Messiah, the ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who will bring in all the promises and fulfill all the purposes of God. Now I tell you now, the book of the Revelation opens up the fact that it is absolutely true. This same Jesus, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Now that's the lesson we're going to see that we've learned so far in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is. The Lord Jesus Christ, where he is. The Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done. The Lord Jesus Christ, what he is going to do. I will turn to John 16 as well, though something's telling me as I'm speaking that we're not going to get there. But I'll just read it in case the Lord means us to. John chapter 16, because it's the second lesson I want to underscore that is, we have, has been clearly set out in the pictures of Revelation. John chapter 16 and verse 33 <coughs> It says there, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. Well, you get the picture of the revelation, and you see the glorious and final triumph of the Lord, who is both Lord and Christ. When you think of him coming again, and no matter what, you, in him you do have peace. No doubt about that. Otherwise you haven't read the book properly. In the world you shall have tribulation. The book of the Revelation so far has made it very clear to us what the Christian life is in the world. How the Christian lives in the world, what to expect in the Christian life in the world. It has underscored the fact that there is going to be tribulation while we're in the world. And I have to restate that truth and lesson and demonstrate it because in many, many ways we've misunderstood the role of the, our role in the world 
and the kind of life to expect that we will find and have in the world has been sold to us rather badly as a life of glitter and glamour and success and power and all this kind of thing where we seem to ride on some sort of magic heavenly carpet, you know, and skim over all the troubles of earth and have great power and authority and we only get blessing and then everything's right at the end. That's not what it says here. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. This same Jesus, God's made him both Lord and Christ. And we did see, didn't we? Why was the book written? It was written for a blessing. What did it say in chapter, right in the very beginning in chapter 1? Blessed is he that reads. What did it say in chapter 22? Blessed is he that reads and keeps the sayings. And the book of the Revelation, it's written indeed to bring us a great blessing. And fellow Christian, if you want to read the book of Revelation and not be blessed, you haven't read it properly, right? And it is written in, in a way that just climaxes with those words at the end. Even so, amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. You know, there's, there's to be built up within your soul just a longing and a yearning and a crying forth for him to come. And if you, if you read the book and you don't get to that point where you think, oh Lord, would you not come? Then actually you've missed the blessing, you see. That's the teaching of the book. And we looked at that, the coming of the Lord and our expectation and our attitude and thinking, well, how should such a glorious hope affect us every single day of our lives and in everything that we think about and do, our whole attitude and character? How would it affect us? How should it affect us? And it led us to look at Matthew 24, Matthew 25. Remember the Olivet Discourse and, and there to, uh, to get a grasp of of what the Lord Jesus said when he answered their question, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming again and of the end of the age? And we noticed that we, we didn't set a, go looking for timetables about events and all sorts of things that were happened. We didn't do that because the Lord Jesus said quite plainly, it's not given to you to know. It's not given to you to know the times and the seasons. No man knows the hour. The day, nor the hour, not even the angels. So I certainly don't know. So I'm certainly not going to speculate or try. Rather than do that, we're going to fix our eye and rest our hope and fill our minds with the thoughts of the blessed Saviour who is coming to redeem us to himself. And he went and he told them after he explained the kind of events that would happen and the scenes that would occur... He told them parables, please. I hope you went home and read the parables of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 because in those parables was encapsulated what should be or what the Lord said should be our entire attitude to the glorious fact that he is coming again. And he said quite plainly, Watch therefore, for you know not the hour at which the Son of Man shall come. That's the first thing we were told to be watching. Remember? Stuck in Siberia. Winter's coming on. We haven't got adequate of food, provisions or clothing. The weather's going to be absolutely terrible. There's no way we can get out at all. We're just stuck there. And it's gone on for months. But, but someone told us that there's one train that will come by. Only one train, nothing else. And that one train can take us out. But the trouble is we weren't given a timetable. So as things got worse and worse, you know, what were you doing? You are watching. Watching, watching with anticipation, waiting for the train to come. That's the attitude of, of heart towards the coming of the Lord. Oh, not, no timetable, but it might be today. Then he told the, the parable, after that parable, of the, after that comment, 
of that we should be watching, for we know not. He told the parable, didn't he, about the servants, that the faithful servant. He was busy in the business of the absent master. He was feeding the people. He was not indulging himself and he was not quarreling. What he was doing was working. Now that's important. Watching and working. Not indulging, not quarreling. While we're doing the quarreling, we're not doing the working. Then he told the parable of the ten virgins. And what was the lesson in the parable of the ten virgins? They were to be ready and they were to be waiting, not to be sleeping and unprepared. There's a sense of alertness. There's a sense of busyness in the task. There's a sense of focusing on the fact. That's the point of the coming of our Lord. It should fill us from top to toe and invade every sense of feeling and emotion and influence everything that we do. Remember, the talents was the next one. We should be trading with what we've got and not hiding it in a towel, imagining the Lord to be a hard man. But instead, we trade and we use for the glory of the return of the coming master who has gone away for a little while. It's not that for ourselves we make it for him. And the last one was, in the great day when the Son of Man comes and he gathers together all the nations of the earth, separates them like sheep from goats, and he says to those on his right hand, come and inherit the kingdom. For he says unto them, I was sick and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. And they said, when did that happen? He said, inasmuch as you did it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it to me. So if we're watching and we're working and we're waiting and we're trading, now we're serving one another. Because in that other brother or sister, in whatever their need, I see something of the Christ. I see that this is one of his children. And it tells me how he regards his child, my brother, so that when I serve that other Christian person, in actual fact, I am serving him. So what's our attitude to the coming of the Lord? We're waiting, we're watching, we're working, we're trading, and we are serving, and we are just looking for the joy of meeting, the sheer wonder and the joy of the coming of the Lord. It's the person we are focusing on. It's not the details or the events of history or the calamities of earth or, or the expected signs and times and seasons or days or hour. It is the Lord. We've loved him all our lives. I've talked to him every day. He's guided me in every situation. He supported me. He has sustained me. I have loved him from the very first when I realized he died for a sinner like me. I have loved him all the more as I've grown to know him better. And I've proved him in every situation. And whom having not seen I love and whom having not looked upon I'm longing for I'm rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory those are the lessons that we've got the climax of every hope fellow Christian it's the coming of the Lord it's the glory of the Lord and now the next blessing we've got out of the book of Revelation let me read in chapter 1 to you that verse just one verse and you'll get it 
Revelation in chapter 1, where he says in verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Now just stop a minute. Imagine he comes right now in all his glory and splendor, so bright in the shining that you can barely cope with it. Indeed, like John, you feel as though you would fall at his feet as dead. And he states these words about himself, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. From eternity to eternity, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Suddenly, you realize you're reading a book, Revelation, which is exactly what it says it is uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is. It says that very clearly in its opening verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave. Now it's not a revelation, alright? It is the revelation. It's like the authentic thing. This is the original copy. This is the full copy of the original plan which God wrote down, as it were, and then declared about his son. And in that revelation of who he is. He's revealing this truth. Who he is, one. Where he is now, it's lovely, two. What he is doing right now as we're sitting here. And what he will yet do in a coming day. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This same Jesus who's been made both Lord and Christ. Who he is, where he is, what he's now doing and what he will do in a day that lies ahead. It's a bit like this, and think of it like this. I was thinking, just imagine if I was in the church at Ephesus, you know, where John the Apostle was, and um, I ran into him one Sunday morning, and uh, I said, you know, John, I've just read your gospel. He said, wow, what a book. I mean, what a book your gospel is. You've told us so much about the Lord Jesus. You've actually gone to the point where you've told us where he was before he came to earth. You've told us that he was face to face with God. You've actually told us, John, what he was doing before he came flesh and dwelt amongst us and where we could behold his glory. You told us, you know, by him was all things made and without him was not anything made that was made. You've told us these tremendous truths, John. And, well, when, when I read your book in the gospel there, when I read those chapters and I saw, look at what he's doing, look at the miracles of the Lord performed, look at the wonderful teaching that he gave. He went right through his life. And, and you said so much. And then, then there was his death and his burial uh, and his resurrection. And oh, we know all about his ascension, John. John, you've told us so much. But John, tell me, what about what's happened since? You get it? What's happened since? Your cloud received him out of our sight. Uh, what's he doing now? Can you tell us, John, uh, what's he going to do next? And John says to me, Oh, brother Paul, you know, 
haven't you read my other book? That's the book of the Revelation, you see. Because that's exactly what it's telling us. It's telling us, one, who he is, yes. But he's also telling us where he is now. He's telling us what he's doing now. And he's telling us what he is going to do. It's as though, you know, you saw him go up. It must have been wonderful. With hands uplifted, he blessed his own. And, and in the midst of his blessing, he's caught up into heaven. And they're looking, gazing in amazement. And it says in Acts that the cloud received him out of their sight. And it says, oh, God says, look, just for a moment in Revelation, I'll, I'll open the cloud that conceals what's going on. And I'll show you where he is. And I'll show you what he's doing. And what's more than that, I'll tell you what he's going to do in that glorious feature yet to come. So, we look at this in the Revelation. Number one, who he is. This is important. This is very important. You see, we read the gospel record... And you see there the Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. You see the Jesus of Nazareth. You see the, the stranger of Galilee. You see a beautiful picture of a real man, God's man, a perfect man, a lowly Jesus, meek, the meek and serving Christ. You see him in his humility, coming to seek and to save that which is lost. You just love to think of the weary man sitting by a well, yet speaking to a sinful woman. You love to think of him as a, in that lovely picture, sleeping on a pillow or a cushion in the stern of the boat, while the storm was on the sea. And then he rises and he calms the storm. And you see him, they all press. They want to hear him. They want to follow him. He's the rabbi who teaches like no other had ever taught. He says, come unto me, or ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you think, what a beautiful, beautiful picture. I know so much about him. And God says, but this same Jesus, this one who was down here in humiliation, I have made him to be both Lord and Christ. I'm sending you the book of the Revelation for you to discover that this one is my son in all his glory. And I have given him the glory which he had along with me before the world was. You have known him meek and lowly. That is what he became. I will reveal what he now is, who he really is, and all that I have made him. This same Jesus has God made both Lord and Christ. Now we must get this. We must get this. Because there has been a major emphasis, particularly in the last decade, on just Jesus the man. You know, the Jesus of the Gospels, right? The, 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 the historical Jesus. Look, it's quite right and it's quite beautiful, but it is not all. He's no longer just someone that we can walk up to and speak to as a man here amongst men in the presence of men, as, a, a, as it were, the meek of the lowly Jesus. He's both Lord and Christ. If our concept of him is not to see him in all his glory, if we have 
no true understanding of who he has become and what God has made him, then we'll never have that sense of true wonder. We'll never have that sense of true awe. You know, true reverence. When you do actually move in the fear of the Lord and there's a true love that comes from you. Yes, I love the man who was a man and died for me. But when I realize who he was that became that man and what he is in all his glory who actually became humble enough to die as a man for my sins and be my saviour, then my love grows stronger. My sense of reverence for him, of awe, I stand in awe of him. And I lift him up into a position whereby I see that he is both Lord, he's totally in control. He is Christ to the bringer in of the purposes of God. And I suddenly regard him with a deeper respect and a greater reverence and I realize he's not just like me. He's far above me. Far above me. And I learn reverence. And I want to sing his glory. And I want to speak of his love. And I want to speak of his grandeur. And I want to marvel at his power. And I don't just want to make him equal with me. And I lose a, I no longer am so familiar as I was. I learn reverence. And I learn godly fear. And that's exactly what you've got in Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. I mean he comes and he stands in front of you for a moment. If you can just glimpse it. and I am Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. The one which is, I am the one which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. And there he stands in the fullness of his glory and in the splendor of deity. He inhabits, fulfills the Boundaries of eternity, if boundaries there are, from eternity to eternity he is God. And in the fullness of his strength, the Almighty, he spans all times and existence. This is who he is. And it's right that we should fall at his feet as one that is dead, along with John. Fellow Christian, Revelation's telling us who he is. If I just turn over the chapter and read further down chapter 1 and go into chapter 2, what is he there? He's the Lord of the churches. That's what he is. He's walking there in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. John says, I can see him. He's like the Son of Man. Like a Son of Man. You see, there's a likeness. He remembers the Lord Jesus on earth. He says, I, I contemplated his glory. I knew him down here. And now up there I see, it's just, it's like him. It, it, there is a difference about him. He's crowned with glory and with honor. That's the difference. So it's not that it is him exactly. It is like him, you see. It's the nearest expression I can give to it. He says, but there's something more. He's the Lord of the churches. And the, as he moves amongst the lampstands, you see the, the light from the candles, as it were, if you were, just shines up the more to, to open up and to reveal something more of his glory. That's what a church is all about. We're here to display and reveal the glory of the Lord. We're not a happy club. A church isn't a happy club. 
Our church is our lampstand. And he, we look up there and we see him in, as, in all his glory, but he's there as the high priest acting on our behalf. That's the part of his high priestly service moving amongst the lampstands as he looks and reviews the churches down through the ages of time and he did it in the seven churches and he's encouraging, he's correcting, he's succoring, he's warning, he's rewarding, he's assessing. And when we gather as a church or when we are as the church As a group together, just remember, the eye of him who walks and the golden candlesticks is looking down. Not to criticize or judge, but to correct. Not to, as it were, create a a frightfulness within our hearts, whereby we're going to hide our talent in a towel. But with the high priest, the, the one who suckers, the one who strengthens, the one who helps and the one who never takes his eye off us, and his arm is ever encircling us. He is the Lord of the churches. He is the Lamb that's on the throne, chapter 4 and chapter 5. It is true, all power has been given unto him in heaven and upon earth. It is true that the, the Father has given all things into his hand, you see. It is true that this is the one that Paul wrote of, he is the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. You see, there's splendor in this. But he's the lamb that's on the throne. He's the king who actually gave his life for his subjects. I tell you, you go down the pages of history, you won't find another kingdom like that. Where the king himself gave his life for his subjects. The Lamb that's on the throne. And in full control, for this same Jesus, God has made both Lord in control, you see. If you go through the book, you'll find he is in control. He controls the opening of the seals. He it is who directs the blowing of the trumpets. He it is whose voice comes out of the temple in the final act when the vials or the bowls of wrath are to be poured down. He it is who is restraining and directing and controlling even the forces of evil itself. He is over all, God over all, blessed forever. This same Jesus has God made both Lord, you see, in control. And all the while he is bringing in the purposes of God, the Lamb that's on the throne. This is who he is. Now where is he now? Where is he now? Is it revealed to us? Does Revelation tell us where he is now? Well we've already seen there when we were reading. He's at least walking amidst the golden lampstands. Glory overwhelming. The light shining him up. There he is. What do the hymn writers say? See him now. This is where he is. See him now. He's not the Christ of the Calvary Road. He doesn't wear the garment of the peasant. No. He's not weary sleeping on a pillow. He's not thirsty waiting for drink by a well. Not at all. See him now in glory seated where thy sins no more can rise. Jesus in his heavenly temple sits with God upon the throne. Now no more to be forsaken. His humiliation is gone. That is where he is. Chapter 4 and 5. 
on that throne, surrounded by the myriads of the multitudes on high. And what do they do? They proclaim his worthiness. They, comply, they proclaim his power, his riches, and his glory, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's where he is now. That's where he is now. What's he doing now? We've already seen it. Overseeing the, overseeing the church, ruling over all things, bringing in the great program, God's great building that we touched upon this morning. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is what he is doing now. And Satan may propose and governments may legislate and evil may want to prevail, but the building program of God goes on, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone and the whole building which is fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the Lord. Nothing will stop the building program. And you get that brought out in the chapters that we've read. The idea is, compl- is very clearly put there. You remember in chapter 7 where God is sealing his servants and he says, don't bring any judgment down. Don't you hurt the earth. Don't you hurt the sea. Don't you hurt the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads till I have put my mark upon my people and made them my own. And in the meantime, while the sealing is going on, it says in chapter, in verse 17, they shall hunger no more, thirst no more, neither shall the sun light upon them nor any heat. And in that blessed thing, he's protecting, he's sealing, he's building, he's taking, he's making, he's protecting, he's guiding, he's succoring his people. He shall lead them to fountains of living waters, And finally, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's what he's doing. You know, it's going on, it's going on, fellow Christian. The work is going on. The builder and maker is God. The architect, as it were, is God. And the builder is God. You all know about building and the arguments between the architect and the builder. The architect's got ideas, academic very often, impractical very often. The builder with a hammer says, I can't do that crazy design. There's a much easier way to do it, a cheaper way to do it, a better way to do it. There's an argument, you see. There's no argument in God's building program. When Abraham looked for a city, he looked for a city whose builder and maker, in other words, builder and architect, was God. It's a perfect building program with a perfect building team, if you like. And God will see to it that when the last stone is added to that building, then the Lord shall come and shall take his church, his bride, to be forever with himself. That's the summary. That's where it is. You see, he is now, as the Christ, the promised Messiah, the promised King who would bring in God's purposes and plans, he is now doing exactly that working towards the grand climax of the purposes of God in redemption. And none shall stay his hand at all until finally finished a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness, 
a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the climax. And God himself shall dwell with man, and God will be all and in all. Praise the Lord. We'll be there. We'll be there. We'll all be there. Because on the throne is the Lamb who bought me with his own blood and made me one of his subjects and brought me into his kingdom. It's wonderful, isn't it? That's who he is. That's what he's doing. But what's he going to do? What is he going to get to? What hasn't he done yet? Well, he hasn't finished yet, has he? (laughs) No. Ultimately, you know, two things. I want to make these two points clear. One, he's going to return. That's what we wait for. We know that. He's going to return and he's going to judge the world. He will put an end to all sin. He will put down all rule and he will put down all authority and there will be a day when there will be no opposition whatsoever. There'll be no hindrance to blur our vision and there'll be no blackness or sin to dim his glory or any resistance whatsoever to stop the demonstration or hinder the demonstration of his power. That's what he'll do. And in that day in Revelation 19, the picture puts it there very beautifully, the the rider on the white horse comes forth, and it's a magnificent picture of strength and glory, but it's a a dreadful picture of of wrath and, and judgment, you know. His name is the Word of God, and he has that name, another name upon his vesture and upon his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he comes with ten thousands of his saints. And then there's the great supper, of, there's the supper of the great God and the flesh of kings and all mankind, fed to the birds of the heaven. It's a dreadful picture. And he has the vesture which is dipped in blood. He's going to return and he's going to judge, his, judge the world. But this is the theme running through, Gen- through Revelation all the time. He is going to deliver his people from the fury and the fierceness of the judgment that is yet to come. Fellow Christian, we will never face the wrath of God. For Jesus is our deliverer from the wrath to come. We are not appointed unto wrath, it says in Thessalonians, but unto salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And picture after picture goes through the book of Revelation, demonstrating and illustrating and proving the importance of this fact, that he will deliver his people from judgment to come. We've read them and we've seen them. We got to Revelation chapter 6 and we had this terrible picture where the people are crying out and it says... They're the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, the bondmen, the free men, hiding themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, saying to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And you think this is the end. It's got to be the finish. Suddenly, Before the seventh seal is open, the picture changes. And what do we see? 144,000. Oh, they've got the seal of God on their foreheads. 
Then we see a great multitude, which no man can number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. The rest are fleeing from the Lamb. These are standing before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palms in their hands, saying with a loud voice, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And the angels are there, and the four living creatures are there, and they're saying, Amen, and blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne, he feeds them, and he leads them and he, to the fountain of living waters, and God wipes away all tears from their eyes. See, see the contrast. You've got this one half, the world fleeing in the face of judgment, the people of God rejoicing and safe, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I want you to get this in the book of Revelation. As we've read it so far, it goes on and on like this. You go to chapter 14, and remember those angels that came, those with the terrible warnings of judgment, crying out. You know, they had the everlasting gospel, but fear God, they said. Judgment's coming. They said about Babylon has fallen. They said about the judgment of those individuals that took the mark of the beast. But it all began with those reassuring words that that the Lamb stood on Mount Sion and with him were 144,000 with his Father's name written upon their forehead and they sang a new song. These were those that were being redeemed from the earth and in their mouth was found no guile for they are without fault before the throne of God. Do you see that? These are my people, he says. I deliver my people... Before judgment comes, I warn of judgment in chapter 14, 15, 16. I'm going to pour out my judgment. But let me show you, first of all, my people, they're standing redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb on the throne, the sovereign who died for the subjects. Is that all? Look, it's not all. I don't want to weary you, but I want you to get the grandeur and the structure and the truths in the pictures of of this book. When we get to chapter 15, which is where we're going to go for our next chapter, there are seven bowls of judgment to be poured out. I mean, it's the final judgment. It's a dreadful judgment when we read about it. But he says that they've got the seven angels with the seven bowls or the seven vials of wrath, then he said, now wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, look over there, look at that, look at that. He shows us a lovely vision. There's a sea of glass before the throne of God. And standing on the sea are the people of God singing the songs of Moses and of the Lamb. For they are redeemed and they're safe. And they are secure from all alarm, standing in the presence of God when the same God is bringing judgment on a wicked world. The Lord delivers the godly out of judgment. We are not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. And if you think that's not enough pictures, go to chapter 19 when that rider on a white horse actually comes out in such power in such vengeance, as it were, in such wrath and fury. And you think, this is terrible. What's happened? Well, it says, the, God says in his book, look, this is what's happened. Chapter 19 is a picture of judgment. But before I show you that, let me just show you chapter 18. You know what chapter 18 is all about? It's about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, you see, it's you and I, it's the people of God 
redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, brought into communion and in union, inseparable from the one who is upon the throne. And you see, the whole thing is, it's based on that lovely promise that he made in John 14. I will come again and receive you unto myself. Fellow Christian, that's what we look for. We know judgment is coming. But we know the blessed, glorious, wonderful, magnificent truth that we're safe in the arms of Jesus. Safe on his gentle breath. Firm on that rock of ages, sweetly, my soul can rest. But we sang this morning's right, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let us go away this morning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, who he is, who he is, where he is, what he is doing, and what he's going to do, meanwhile resting, looking and longing and saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. So, Lord, we give thanks for our time spent this morning. We contemplated Solomon. We contemplated the house that he built. We contemplated a day when the glory of the Lord filled that house. And then we read as someone, we say, more than Solomon's here, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And this morning we want to bow at those feet, those pierced feet of the once crucified Christ, glorified, reigning, and ruling. And Father, we want to look for his coming again and pray that the reality of these things might burn into our hearts and bring a joy and a love, and a commitment, and a service from us, like we have perhaps never given or felt before, as we realize more and more and more fully who it was that died for us, and who it is that's coming for us, and the wonder of what he's doing in the meanwhile for us, Our God and Father, make us grateful this morning, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.